Hello, No So Network. Everybody, welcome back. It's WCW Must Die, and it's episode 14, so I guess that makes it DX rated for some strange reason. Well, <laughs> actually, I just thought of this. If it's if it's WCW Must Die 14 DX rated, there's only one way we could start this. America! America! I don't actually know what that guy says, but uh, yeah, man. Uh, it's unreleased, never <laughs> played once, never released again intro to WCW Must Die episode 14. I am Johnny C, and I will be leading you through this evening's proceedings here in the courtroom. Uh, it's going to be taking place, not in my mom's basement, but Grand Rapids, Michigan. On May 22nd, 2000, we are back for Nitro. And the first thing that we're treated to is a recap of the new blood imploding on Thunder when substitute teacher Shane Douglas failed to keep his class together and the fucking county came in and cut the funding and the new blood are just all out on the streets but then in a rather dramatic turn footage of the nature boy falling while trying to leave the ring we cut to the parking lot and tony shivani gives us this dramatic reading fans on thunder rick flair stumbled and fell unexpectedly which could honestly describe so much uh, it could describe uh, me yesterday when I was carrying a bunch of bags of groceries up the stairs. Uh, it could describe me the other day when I was getting out of my car at work and uh, dropped my bag uh, and went to pick it up and stepped over my own shoelaces and fell. Um, I mean, it could describe this lady I saw at the mall earlier today who got out of the elevator. I, I just, I don't know what to tell you guys. I mean, that could literally mean anything. Stumbled and fell unexpectedly. I mean, is, is there any other way to stumble and fall? Unless you, I, well, I guess if you're a professional wrestler, you could stumble and fall expectedly. I just, I didn't think it was like that funny, but now I'm really thinking about it out loud. It's just it to describe so much. But Tony Schiavone is trying to imply that it's like this horrifying and dramatic thing. In reality, we discussed it on our last episode. I believe it was like an inner ear slash vertigo problem. But it was turned into an angle because it happened in clear view of the cameras and that we could do about it. You know, you could edit it out, I suppose, on a tape show. But no, man, we go gorilla. It happened on camera. It happened live. It happened right now. And I can see Vince Russo being like that. So a bunch of limos pull up in the parking lot and Liz in a black dress, Jeff Jarrett in black, uh, like Larry the Cable Guy tuxedo, uh, Vince Russo in like a black Yankees jersey, baby. I don't remember. I didn't take note of what he had on. But the point is, they're all black because it's a funeral. Tonight is a funeral for the career of Ric Flair. It's a very WWF way of describing something. So you can tell Russo came up with it. And I'm not saying that as like a dig. I'm not saying that to point fingers. It's just, really, if you think about the way that WWF wears their things, and I don't blame them for this particular example per se but if it were to be like tonight we'll be holding a funeral for rick flair nah it's a little tasteless tonight we'll be holding a funeral for the career of rick flair um jj's like well fitting weather for today and russo says jeff please i feel faint where's david <laughs> doing his best moira rose like i feel faint alex alexis i feel faint where's david david i just I don't know, but it, I think it's hilarious because he's like, you know, where's David? Where's my son, David? I need him today. It's a very hard day. 
but they're all very, very sad. But Russo does have the WCW World Heavyweight Championship belt. Uh, Scott Hudson makes it clear, though, that Flair is still champion. We cut into the arena. The announcers reiterate the funeral for the career of Flair tonight, not for the actual person. And then I hear the sweet sounds of the cat, even though it's his peacock dub music. I've never actually sang the cat's original theme song on here, but my buddies and I used to do it all the time, so a shout out to them. I am very excited to see the cat coming down. We all know that Ernest the Cat Miller is my favorite part of any show. So starting off on the right foot, so to speak, (laughs) you know, because he uses the right foot for the feliner. I'm full of dad jokes, guys. Don't go anywhere. Uh, His opponent is Booker T. He's got the tea bag. No, he's got the tea bag, not he's got the tea bag. I didn't say tea bag. But Booker T comes out to this really crazy... Like, he comes out to his very rare Booker T, not Harlem Heat music. And it's like, dun, 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 dun. And then there's a robot who's like, emergency, <laughs> emergency. <laughs> I don't know. Like, can you, I'm not making that up, but it makes me wish that Booker T had, like, a robot sidekick. <laughs> I guess that's what Gold Dust was. I guess Booker T just having to play off something ridiculous uh, amuses me. I guess that's probably why they paired him with the MIA. But I don't know. I think I'd rather have, like, Polly's uh, female robot companion from the original non-director's cut of Rocky IV hanging out with Booker. <laughs> like, Midnight! <laughs> yes, Booker. <laughs> you could call her Midnight. <laughs> um, as this robot is announcing Booker T's entrance, though, I noticed that the cat has a bow staff. And he's fucking going to Darth Maul City. He's putting on a, an exhibition in the middle of the ring before the bell is even rung. So this is all pre-match shenanigans. And uh, Mark Madden, though, casually lets us know that this is a weapons match. So the bell rings. Now remember, folks, here on WCW Must Die, my job's to tell you what happened during this show. Uh, but when it comes to most of it, we just can't help but ask, what happened? So that's what I'm going to tell you. Um, the cat defeats Booker T via beating the ever-loving piss out of him for five straight minutes. Now, Scott Hudson makes it very clear that only only martial arts weapons are legal, Tony. Uh, there is a sign at ringside that says Slim Shaney, not Slim Shady, Slim Shaney, number one pimp. So, if you are Slim Shaney of Grand Rapids, Michigan... Tweet me at the Johnny C and let me know if you are still cleaning up and are the number one pimp of your area. The martial arts weapons only Tony is instantly called into play because the cat uses a chair as his first weapon of choice. And then he busts out the sticks like he's fucking Nightwing. And as if I couldn't love the cat enough already with Robin being maybe my second or third favorite comic character, and by the extension, Nightwing, and by the extension that Nightwing's weapons are the Escrimistics, I'm like a nerd heaven right now. Uh, Mark Madden reveals that he has breaking news. The cat is indeed Garrett Bischoff's karate instructor. <laughs> I swear to you, that's not a... <laughs> it sounds like a shtick that I would deliver, but it's not. That's what Madden has breaking news for us. There is a fucking massive Insane Clown Posse banner in the very front row, and I don't even think they're here. 
There's also, and I don't mean to harp on the signs, but Grand Rapids was representing tonight. There was a Titanic swim team sign, which, which I know is stupid and obvious, but I don't know. The cat switches from his scrimistics to nunchucks. And in between, in, between, in between each offensive strike that the cat makes with his scrimistics or his nunchucks, he does actual like karate movements with the weapons, like doing the exhibition type stuff. And he transitions these weapons exhibitions perfectly into dancing like he's Ernest the Cat Miller and not Ernest the Martial Arts Master Miller. It's like the perfect mirroring, and I'm not, this is not Johnny C's uh, over-the-top exaggerated praise for shitty wrestling. Ernest the Cat Miller is a perfectly mixing his character which is the goofball wannabe leader of the new blood, but also a martial arts expert. And it's just, I don't know. I'm not saying he should be the world champion, but he's, it's so interesting because he's booked in this match to literally beat the shit out of Booker the whole time. When I was, when I jokingly said he wins by beating the piss out of him, I'm not kidding. That is what he does. That's what this match is. Um, he, he breaks the nunchucks out, though, back into his scrimistics, and um, he does some dick thrusts with them. So remember, <laughs> you know, I guess that could – I should have painted that picture earlier before I painted – before I threw on all the praise because that, that definitely is a part of it that I quite enjoy. <laughs> and then he does a crotch chop with the scrimistics too. So <laughs> what can I say? And then holy fuck, he smacks Booker T in the back of the skull with the scrimistics. And he absolutely must have gotten like caught up in the moment. He doesn't pull it to protect him. And I, you know, I'm not here to see someone get their brain smashed in. But based on the rules of momentum, this one obliterates the shit out of his face and jaw area. And this is not an exaggeration or hyperbole. The entire crowd gasps in unison. Like, watch it. And you'll know the hit. You will hear the crowd. You know, because... WCW crowds are whatever. They can be hit, they can be missed, and this isn't Thunder, so it's not, they're not going to sweeten this. Like, this is, they react. It is insane. Now, I know what these weapons are because, like I said, I'm a Nightwing Robin fan. Mark Madden calls them karate sticks. They're karate sticks, Tony. There is a hilarious moment, though, when the cat twirls the kendo sticks. And as he's doing it, the crowd, like, is cheering for Booker, like, to get up and do some hope spots, right? And the cat, like, gets his eyes really wide, and he starts spinning faster, and then he, like, comes to a stop and, like, bows, assuming that the crowd is cheering for him. It's just fantastic character work stuff, guys. I don't know what to tell you. Yes, it's funny. It makes me laugh, but I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Um, but the weird thing is when Booker gets up for the hope spot, the cat just squashes it by smacking the fuck out of him with the stick. He then rides the kendo stick as if he were Happy Gilmore's grandmother. But what the fuck, man? You're winning. You might as well. He hits the book again with a massive windup with the kendo stick. Oh! In a rare hope spot in this match. It is countered for a bookend. But the weird thing about this bookend is, is that it's like a transition move. So it must not be his finish yet. The cat tries to put offense back together, gets hit with the Harlem sidekick, and the spine buster. Now Booker finally has a kendo stick. And he goes to beat down the cat. Oh no. But the perfect one, Sean Stasiak, is here. And, uh, I, you know, you expect, 
he's going to improve this match? No. No, I don't think he is. I will say, though, it, I learned something about Sean Stasiak during this match. I believe he has to legally be registered as a legal weapon, or excuse me, as a lethal weapon to be a karate implementation to not get the cat disqualified because no DQ is called. So the perfect one's hands are not only a lethal weapon because he can fuck you up with his um, bullshit chiropracty, chiropracty, chiropractor stuff, stick, but he can also beat the shit out of you with them as well. Uh, the cat does bring a chair into the ring. Uh, the book gets it. And he does beat the shit out of Sean Stasiak with it, so I'm all for that. However, after Booker hits Sean Stasiak with the chair, he makes a cardinal mistake. Now, if Booker T had spent any time in ECW, he would know not to do this. But Booker is a little sloppy, and he holds the chair dangerously close to his own face. And fuck me sideways, the cat cartwheels into frame and does a Van Catenator by kicking the chair into the skull of Booker. And not only does it make a sound, it looks crisp and it's filmed perfectly. One, two, three. Now, this match was actually very interesting to watch. From a wrestling perspective, putting the cat over Booker T in a very dominant fashion. You know, it... It's just, I don't want to say mind-boggling because it's 2000 WCW, but you would think, and I know I love the cat, but this would seem pretty clear-cut. Even if it's a weapons match, you would think Booker still easily picks up the win to get momentum going into, you know, pay-per-view. Um, or just anything because uh, in a month and a half, he's going to be the world champion. Spoiler, in case you guys didn't know that. But man, I, I'm not going to sit here and besmirch awesomeness for the cat. So I, you know... I rank, you know, it's always good to, to talk about what we do here on the show before we start going through the matches. And before I get my first ranking, yeah, I have a little fun with it. But I, it's purely based on entertainment. If you entertain me with shenanigans, or if you entertain me by being a five-star Tokyo Dome classic, you're entertaining me. I don't know how to separate the two in my mind. I, was, I skipped that day of school. I give it four Robins due to the Bo Staff and Escrimistic shenanigans. And I don't know... What you all think, I mean, we're just digging into it, but that was maybe my top WCW opener that I've watched for this program. I don't really rank things that way, um, but it was fun to watch. I do recommend it. Uh, obviously, you're not going to give it four stars, but I, I do think you'll have some fun with it. If nothing else, it's a it's like a time capsule of, damn, fucking, you know, Booker, not doesn't look bad, but Jesus. And that stiff hit. You got to see that stiff hit. That is not the only thing to see. There is some post-match shenanigans. So the heels start a beatdown of the Booker man. And the misfits in action are here for the save. They do kind of an interesting misfits in splashkin spot. Splashkin, you know. When I wrote this note down, I was like, how the fuck am I going to pronounce that? Uh, but they all like take turns doing a stinger splash, hence the misfits in splashing. I'm going to stick with that. Unfortunately, though, we are joined by Mr. Eric Bischoff and Kimber Me. I don't have anything against them per se, but they just continue to add to clusterfuckness of segments that get overcrowded. The cat leaves the ring and bows to Eric Bischoff. <laughs> so 
His, his credibility just keeps climbing for me. And as if it couldn't get any higher, at this moment, he takes off the black belt that he wears as part of his wrestling attire and holds it up to the sky and to the crowd like it's a wrestling championship belt and kind of pivots in place like, look at my title, look at my title, look at my title. Bischoff has the stick and he says, last week we had a meeting in L.A. and we're one phone call away from changing the face of the new blood and WCW forever. So let's start over. Let's let bygones be bygones. Why does Bischoff sound drunk when he talks? He wants to offer them all, that being the MIA and Booker T, status in the new blood. Let's just end this war and be on the same side, basically. So not a bad offer. Uh, The MIA huddle up in the middle of the ring. They contemplate. General Rection says, Hey, Eric! To which Easy e replies, Yes! And I'm not doing shtick. That is how he replies. They, the MIA say, We got three words for you. Kiss our ass! And then Major Guns moons Mr. Bischoff. He says, You just signed your death warrant. And then... In a moment of chicanery, someone at Peacock uh, doesn't have their finger on the trigger because Eric Bischoff's unauthorized Desperado theme song starts to play as they leave. Not being the song from Seinfeld, the Desperado, but the theme song for the main characters from the film Desperado, starring Antonio Banderas and Selma Hayek. The Millionaire's Club a portion of them anyway, arrive in Hulk Hogan's two-door muscle car. I don't know what kind of car it is, but I think I heard someone mention it was a Barracuda. Um, The scene, though, starts with it looking like they're getting out of the car. But there's no fucking way that all of them could fit in it. Not only because there's four human beings, but these human beings are of abnormal size. Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea says to Lex Luger, Sting, and DDP, who are the uh, sports actors he's arrived with, Looks like Nash is late again, dude. And Steve, the actor, replies, That's his gimmick. That's his gizimmick. Sting just fucking laying down the dad jokes like it's going out of style. He's awful. Continuing this backstage assault, um... Eric Bischoff is now with the Misfits in action in Booker T. And he says to them, I can't fire the Misfits because we've got plans for you. But you, sir, you're now unemployed. Uh, You, sir, referring, of course, to Booker T. Now, this creates all sorts of continuity issues for me because the MIA were fired in one of our much earlier episodes of WCW Must Die. And they were never actually written back into the show officially by being active members of the roster. You know, they would do like these predetermined strikes against their enemies. Uh, But, you know, no one ever said, oh, they're back in or anything like that. And so now Bischoff's saying they don't want to fire him because they have plans for them. When were they reinstated? Sorry, that that, that was an unmatched bout of anger versus what I'm angry about. The reaction doesn't match the incident. And for that, I apologize. But it's still mind-boggling. 
we cut back to the Vince Russo funeral parlor. Now, the camera, as we cut back, is over Russo's shoulder, and all we can see in the frame is Liz. And there's like this white rope uh, that's holding the casket open, we'd later learn, but it's, it's diagonally right next to Liz. And if you're not paid attention, you can't really tell what it is. And Liz is wearing a black dress, as I had mentioned, but she has black sunglasses on as well. And for just a moment, she looks like Mr. Matt Murdock Esquire, uh, recently seen in Spider-Man No Way Home. She looks like fucking Daredevil, and it looks like the rope is her cane. And I'm fucking here for a Disney Plus Miss Elizabeth Daredevil spinoff. Fuck, though, I don't think she's available. Hmm. Uh, so, in this funeral parlor, they have a casket where they are having the viewing for the funeral of Ric Flair's career. <laughs> Inside the casket is the Ric Flair robe that Russo stole from the Flair house, which is a great moment of continuity. And holy shit, who is in there with the robe? But none other than Nosy, the guy from the fantastic name of the game music video by the Crystal Method. That's the name of the game. Now, if you've never seen this music video, the concept is um, at some sort of like school, the cool kid in school who can break dance like it's nobody's business happens to be a regular Joe, uh, like you, me, or him, or them, but their face is all nose. Like, their face is a nose. There's no eyes. There's no... Well, there is a nose, but... It's just a fucking nose. But here's the best part of the music video. Is no one seems to care that there's this living, uh, sentient nose who's not only breakdancing at random places around town, but is also the big man on campus. It's reminiscent of one of my favorite films, Teen Wolf, and to a lesser extent, My Boyfriend's Back, where no one in the small town seems to care that a werewolf is a star of the basketball team or that this kid who's a zombie and eating all the school bullies is trying to get the babe to go to prom with him. I'm immediately in fucking wrestle-crap heaven with Nosy. Uh, Vince Russo says, Why, Jeff, why? Jared says, I'll tell you why, he's too damn old. To which Russo snaps back into some sense of normalcy, and he's like, oh yeah, you're right, he was really old. A lot of the New Blood members are here to pay their respects, but some of them are not being respectful. Daphne and Crowbar are having a tug-of-war over the Cruiserweight Championship belt, to, win, to where Russo goes over, and much like any parent who's ever scolded their children in a public setting where they uh, don't want to make a scene, is like, you guys, if you got something to argue about, you go settle it in the ring. Now get out of here. Uh, and they leave. <laughs> now, Russo is once again distraught when he walks by Nosy in the casket because he, he must just be a huge fan of the Ric Flair career. And he says, David, David. And he walks over to David. And he kind of puts his hand on David's, the back of David's head, and pushes it forward, and he goes, Rest your head on my bosom, son. And he puts David's face into his chest. Now, if that's not enough, I had the closed captions on. So, folks, it's time to play Fun 
with closed captions, captions. Now you would think that this one would almost be impossible to fuck up because it's just David, David, rest your head on my bosom, son. But according to the closed captioners, Vince Russo says, baby, baby, rest your head on my bosom, son. This concludes fun with closed captions. We cut to the parking lot again. You uh, sensing a pattern, folks. And it's a car arriving. And Tony, the khaki rooster is here. Uh, the khaki rooster being Terry Taylor in a khaki suit. But uh, I'm lucky. He's, you know, now that he's a businessman and a backstage agent, he's now the khaki rooster. Uh, and he's here with 12-year-old Reed Flair. Good Lord, were his parents aware he was in a car with this man? Even though Amber Alerts freak the fuck out of me on my cell phone, I think we need to launch one. Contact your local congressperson. Um, we cut back to the arena for a talking head with the announcers. Mark Madden is fake crying, so, okay. Uh, they reiterate that Booker T was fired, and they announced that it is believed that after 35 years in the business, tonight Terry Funk will be retiring. We cut to footage of a press conference, and I'm really doing the hardcore finger quotes thing here, okay? It's actually a hallway in the arena, because you can see, like, the little squares on the wall, and also how, like, the top half is one color and the bottom half is another color. So any shit arena you've been to in the last 20 years has the walls painted like this. And there's just a little WCW Nitro sign behind him, and he's in a fucking Terry Funk tuxedo with his headband on. And he's talking to these <clears throat> reporters, but there's no audio. So what the fuck is he saying, and why even go through the hassle of grabbing this footage if you're not going to use it in a way, I, I don't know. I don't want to spend more time on it. Daphne is here, coming down the aisle. She's got a... Uh... Here's what I found. Oh, thank you, watch. Wow. D okay. During that little rant, here's what my watch found. Terry Funk provides quote from Assisted Living Facility. July 6, 2021, WrestlingInc.com. ECW original Tommy Dreamer took to Twitter this evening and issued an update on WWE Hall of Famer Terry Funk after speaking to the, and then, you know, it continues on my watch. So, folks, technology at its finest. Anywho, Daphne has on a tank top that says Hunger for Unger. And I was like, ah, fuck, what does that mean? Oh, she also has a Ric Flair wrestling buddy and she's punching it. I think I was trying to say that before my watch went crazy. Um... So I was like, Unger, what is that? Like, what is hunger for Unger? So I did a little research, and I went to Daphne's Wikipedia page. And I think, and I did learn that Unger is the last name of the Daphne character. Okay, so that's what her shirt represents. But also, while scrolling through her Wikipedia, Daphne appeared in the 1985, what I'm calling horror film, Santa Claus the Movie portraying the bratty girl at ballet practice. Now, if you're not familiar with Santa Claus the movie, it is a horror show starring Dudley Moore and John Lithgow. I remember when I was a child that McDonald's had a promotional tie-in in their Happy Meals for this film. And henceforth, I burdened my poor mother to take me to see this film. And the film... Batman Returns gets a lot of shit for having a promotional tie-in for the Happy Meals because of how frightening and off-putting Batman Returns was. And, again, quotation marks. 
Well, fuck you, Parents Council. You clearly have never seen Santa Claus the movie. It's fucking horrifying. It has, like, nothing to do with... I, you know, I can't even... I'm fucking freaking out talking about it. Google it. Put it in your Google machine. Put it in your Bing machine. Um, whatever the fuck. Just... It's horrifying. She grabs the mic. Daphne, that is. Pronouns, pal. And she says, This is getting absolutely ridiculous. To which Tony Shivani retorts, You're telling me... Daphne uh, airs her grievances like it's Festivus to uh, Crowbar. It says, you ripped the heads off all my Barbie dolls and you peed in my suitcase. To which Tony Giovanni responds with three words, but they all roll together. And he goes, he did what? <laughs> I don't know. It really popped me. And here comes T-Bar or uh, Crowbar. T-Bar. God, T-Bar is the guy from fucking Mustafa Ali's stable. Oh, I don't even remember what they're called. That tells you. Anyway, it's match two because the bell rings. Daphne defeats Crowbar via wake up, wake up, wake up. It's the first of the month. They start with a thumb war. They transition to rock, paper, scissors, to which Mark Madden delivers the dynamite line. This is like Fez O'Connor 2. And then next, I wrote down verbatim the next few law, a few items that Tony Schiavone calls on commentary. And these are his words, not mine. Indian burn. Slap in the face. Front chancery. DDT from Daphne. Miss Hancock is here. Uh, Daphne hits Crowbar with the what's called atomic wedgie. She hits the Franken-Screamer. It gets only two. The crowd is dead silent. They are not buying into the shenanigans. Crowbar gets on offense and does a gimmick where after he hits every move, he kind of gets over uh, like to where he's face-to-face with Daphne. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I just, you know, I just wrestled you because we're in a wrestling match. And speaking of whining like that, here comes Hard Knocks Chris Candido and Tammy. Mr. Russo, I thought I was going to feud with the Macho Man. And now I'm feuding with Crowbar. Well, where the hell's the Macho Man? Uh, Daphne harpoons Tammy. Tammy brings in a chair. Crowbar grabs it. And Chris Candido hits a middle rope Candido-nator. One match after the cat hit a Van Catinator. There's too much Van Blankenators going on in this show. Clearly the agents were not paying attention. Chris Candido hits what I'm calling the Austin Annihilator Tombstone Piledriver. And Daphne gets on top of Crowbar to revive him as she fears for his existence... The referee counts one, two, three, and as I mentioned, Daphne is now the undisputed cruiserweight champion of the world. I don't know. This match had a lot of potential to be perfect, but I'm giving it two unamused Tony Schiavone's, because in the end, it just wasn't enough to bring me pleasure. We cut to the kid cam in the back, which is a handheld camcorder that says, kid cam, Horace Hogan is getting a skull massage from Tori Wilson. Tony Giovanni sees this on his monitor and says, um, let's stay with this for a moment. Probably hoping that a porno breaks out, but we cut to commercial. And in a rare moment of glee for Johnny C, and that rhymed, they left in one of their promotional considerations paid for by the following. And it is a commercial featuring the macho man Randy Savage in an asylum with a busty blonde. And she's giving him a Rorschach test. 
I zoned out and didn't pay attention to the rest of the commercial because I thought about how Macho Man Randy Savage would have been fucking awesome as Rorschach in the Watchmen film or Watchmen anything. And so based on that, I've decided to read you a passage from Watchmen as the Macho Man Randy Savage. Not only is it a passage from this famous novel, it's the opening passage, and it is performed by the character Rorschach, if I may. <clears throat> Rorschach's Journal, October 12th, 1985. Dull carcass finale this morning, a tired tread on the first stomach. This city is afraid of me. I've seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. And when the trains finally scab over, all the vermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sick and murder will foam up about their waist. And all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, Save us! And I'll whisper, No. Dig it! We cut back to a parking lot. The MIA are walking out with Booker T., Booker T reassures them by saying, I got a plan. Stay tuned next week. Stay tuned next week. Now, Booker does not understand how the word tuned works. But I'm more amused by the fact that this is very, very reminiscent of the moment that uh, legendary podcaster Aaron George loves and has hence made me love, where Jake the Snake Roberts is trying to get the results of his eye examination, and the doctor tells him, next week, Jake, next week, we can't take the bandages up till next week. <laughs> Which is not I, I can't. Ralphus and Norman Smiley are behind this parking lot conversation with a car wash uh, where the sign indicates you can get your car washed for $1. We cut to Eric Bischoff's room more back. This is Nitro, where everything happens backstage, guys. Um, Kidman confronts Eric and Tori Wilson about the massage, and Billy Kidman gets into a push fight with the cat. Bischoff tells him that Horace is in a locker room around the corner and to get out of here. The kid is in pursuit. Uh, he finds Tori leaving Horace Hogan's locker room. And he says, you know what? My business is beating his ass. And you could be the referee or something. That's literally what Kidman says. It's the worst fucking line in sports entertainment history. And he goes into the locker room. Eric Bischoff joins the scene and says, referee, not a bad idea. And he sees the referee off camera. He's like, hey, ref, come here. And the ref comes here. He does a weak punch to the referee's gut, steals his referee shirt, a la D2, the Mighty Ducks, and tosses it to Tori Wilson and says, you be the ref. Okay? Um, Kidman and Horace emerge from the locker room, and they are fighting to the ring. Eric Bischoff hops on commentary, and normally, this is where I would say, match three, blank, 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 blank. However, a bell to signify the beginning of a match has not rung. There is action in the ring, however, as Horace Hogan and Billy Kidman are fighting with Tori Wilson watching in a striped shirt because there has been no bell rung. So this is not a wrestling contest with a special guest referee. Um, Eric Bischoff on commentary says, everything's good. Everything's good. We have a ref. She can't count to 10, but she's hot. 
setting back everything. He indicates that there is going to be a special referee for the Great American Bash pay-per-view. Horace Hogan grabs a table. Mark Madden asks Eric Bischoff is Tory Wilson if Tory Wilson is on the line in this match. Uh, I question whether it's a match. Eric retorts with some nonsense about, oh, how dare you, blah, 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 blah. Here comes Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea. <laughs> and Scott Hudson says, business is about to pick up, Tony. How dare you, Scott, invoke those words that belong to Jim Ross. Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea enters the ring where Horace Hogan is already on a table and Billy Kidman is going to come off the top and plancha him. Hulk decides to help the kidster out and just throws him through uh, Horace and the table. He puts his boot on top of Kidman, which is now on top of Horace, and forces Tori to slap the mat three times. The bell finally rings. So Kidman and Horace Hogan wrestle to a no contest because they decide to leave the ring after the bell rings. And I give this match a dud because there was no match because as soon as the bell rings, um, you know, Hulk Hogan cuts an interview. And he tells Eric Bischoff that he doesn't care who the referee is at the Great American Bash. And he also informs Eric Bischoff that according to Mr. Bollea, Mr. Bischoff is a piece of shit. Uh, we cut back to the episode of Flair Knows Best. And Russo and David Flair decide to uh, bury the Rolex in Nosy's casket. Backstage? God, more backstage. The khaki rooster is with Reed Flair, making sure that Reed is okay with what, quote, he has to do. Is he forcing this man, is this man forcing this child to blow him? All right? It's uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about it. But what's going on? Unfortunately, we cut to the parking lot before the mystery can be solved. To the car wash. It is $1 a car. Uh, a lowrider arrives. <laughs> Disco, or the hip-hop, excuse me, the hip-hop Inferno, the Juice, and Rey Mysterio exit this lowrider car. And declare, bounce it, baby, bounce it, baby. Apparently asking for the driver later identified as Conan, to kick this car into gear and bounce with some hydraulics. Now, assuming that the hilarious moment where Eric Bischoff, or excuse me, Eric Bischoff, Jesus Christ, let's, let's, let's do that again. Now, referring to the absolutely historic hilarious moment where Vince McMahon and Eddie Guerrero are in a lowrider together, use take two, and Eddie kicks in the hydraulics, if we're considering that a one- on the Eddie Guerrero hydraulic scale, the hydraulics initiated by Conan are 0.3 Eddie. They're some of the most pathetic hydraulic bounces I've ever seen and would make the creators of the Fast and Furious franchise weep. The MIA watches from the bushes and they have a plan. If it's not to fucking kill me so I don't have to watch more backstage sketches, I don't care what it is. I start to hear the rock and roll remix of Somebody Call My Mama, indicating it's now time for Terry Funk's announcement. He blesses us by arriving wearing his tuxedo jacket or suit jacket with a plain white sweaty t-shirt and a red headband and some really, really gaudy cowboy boots that would make even Shawn Michaels blush. He says, I brought someone very special to me here tonight. Your mom! 
says a random kid in Grand Rapids. <laughs> so, okay. It appears that Brandy Funk is here tonight. I guess that's his daughter. He says, stand up. Stand up, Blue. Come on, Blue. And I'm like, is that what he calls his daughter? Or is it like a horse that he's in love with? Is that the horse that he had to fucking rescue so he couldn't be the knight? Was he supposed to be the blue knight? And when the horse pulled through in the middle of the night, he named it Old Blue? Because he was the blue knight. Is, is it perhaps his fucking Red Rider BB gun? Ah, oh, fuck you, Terry Funk. And your goddamn grandfatherly ways. Um, the speech that he's giving is taking forever, so Eric Bischoff sends out the boys. Terry Funk extends the segment by giving out a list of all the people that he told to watch the program tonight. Now, out of respect for the hardcore legend, I figured I would list them. He told his wife, his brother, his Uncle Herman, and Aunt Einie. Apparently, they reside in Indiana. His Uncle Dutch. Dutch! Mark Madden says. And his Aunt Eleanor. And also all of his cousins. Uh, the franchise interrupts, basically saying, fuck all these people that you're talking about. It's time for you to go ahead and get on with your announcement. I agree with him. And Terry Funk starts to sort of draw it out. Like, you want to hear the announcement? If you want to hear it real bad, say, hell yeah. I think I heard that somewhere. I think we all have. Scott Hudson says, he says, here's my announcement. It's a boy, eight pounds and one ounces. I'm a granddaddy and grandpas shouldn't be wrestling. So I'm retiring on June 1st. And everybody's like, oh, well, it's the end of an era. He's like, I'm retiring on June 1st, 2001, because Brad Siegel gave me a contract extension. So Terry Funk continued to get paid even after WCW went out of business. The New Blood, which came down the aisle, I think it's Shane Douglas, Chris Candido, the cat, and the perfect one, have had enough. So they run to the ring and fight. Now, it's a, it's a vicious beat down here. It's four and a quarter people on one. I give the New Blood an extra quarter because Tammy is here as well, but she doesn't count as a full person. Uh, man, did you guys hear she just killed somebody? What the fuck, man? That's not even funny. Just fuck. They give the Funkster a pile driver on a chair. And all of a sudden, Old Blue crosses the barrier. She, that, that being Brandy Funk, pronouns pal. Old Blue struggles to enter the ring because she decided to wear a dress. Uh, showing that the Funks are modest, which is fine. I'm not shaming her for that, but... Uh, she gets in the franchise's face and he pushes her. And when he pushes her, rather than want to sell, she's worried about her dress flying up. Now, again, I absolutely respect her desire to want to keep her dress down, as is her right, and blah, 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 blah. Just don't wear one, though, because it's just going to be a problem. It just stands out like a sore thumb. Like, of course, I don't want you dressed to fly up either, man. I'm not down with old blue. And even if I was down with Old Blue, I don't want it to. That's not the point. It's just don't wear a dress. There is a hilarious contrast, though, between Old Blue and Tammy. Not only because Old Blue is wearing a black dress, which is sultry, which I would associate with someone like Tammy. But since she is no longer sultry, she's wearing a blue dress, which is, of course, the name of Old Blue. And 
Old Blue Tammy Sitch could give a fuck less if her ass is hanging out the entire time, and by gum, it certainly, certainly is. I couldn't ask for a better contrast. Blue is crying, and a four-man spike pile driver is delivered to the hardcore legend, reminiscent of the old Ready to Rumble four-corner, four-post massacre. The franchise covers Terry Funk, and Chris Candido counts the three. I don't think it counts, though. I just don't, I didn't hear a bell ring. Chris Candido does show a little bit of personality by putting on the red bandana that fell off Terry Funk's hand and carrying around only one of Funk's boots. So, I guess something positive did come from the segment. We cut to the back for some Looney Tunes action. As the MIA arrive at the car wash, General Rection distracts Norman Smiley. Major Guns distracts Ralphus. When all of a sudden, Major Stash pops into the frame and swaps the bucket of soap and water that's at the car wash with a bucket that's similar, but obviously contains a different liquid. Before he leaves, Major Stash spikes the camera as if to say, ain't I a stinker? The wall has a table. Mike Awesome has an ambulance as we cut to commercial. We return from commercial, and we replay a bit of the Chris Canyon confessional from Thunder. We come back from that interview, and Mark Madden says, Are we still paying him? I mean, he's kind of useless now. Tony Schiavone pulls the old Billy Madison and retorts, That is the most stupid thing I've ever heard you say. Everyone at this table is a little bit dumber for hearing those words we just heard from you. (laughs) All right. Not bad, Tony. Not bad at all. Mike Awesome, uh is coming down to the ring for a match and he's in a halo in a wheelchair and is being confined to a halo in a wheelchair funny? No. Is the look on Mike Awesome's face while he's performing this funny? Yes. Is it funny when Mark Madden says, oh no, he's not making fun of Canyon. That's a tribute. Yes, it is. Awesome gets about halfway down the ramp and stands up. And is it funny when Mark Madden yells, it's a miracle. Yes. Yes, I did think it was. Here comes Wally, and he's got his table. The bell rings. Scott Hudson lets us know this is a tables versus ambulance match. I don't have words. Match four. Mike Awesome defeats the wall via I can't even be bothered to make something up. The wall hits a power slam on Mike Awesome. It's about .16 on the Warlord scale. Mike Awesome backbody drops the wall over the top rope. The wall crashes through a table, and the bell rings. Apparently, the ambulance man won with the table, which is not his stipulation. Okay. The wall no-sells the pain of being put to the table. There is a sign in the audience that says Jeff Jarrett slaps his nuts on Vince McMahon's chin. You stay classy. Grand Rapids. Tony verbally licks the wall's asshole by calling him indestructible and superhuman because he was not injured by being thrown through a table. The franchise enters the fray and lays the pipe on the wall by beating him with a pipe. They fight to the back, that being the wall of the franchise and Mike Awesome, pronouns pal. They approach the ambulance, that being Mike Awesome, the franchise and the wall, pronouns pal. The ambulance door opens. Out jumps DDP with a chair. 
DDP spikes the chair in Mike Awesome's face. The wall and the franchise scatter. DDP throws Mike Awesome into the back of the ambulance and shuts the door. The ambulance drives away. DDP flees the scene. The Wall and Shane Douglas continue to fight in the backstage area. Eventually, the Wall gains the upper hand and starts choking Shane Douglas. And while on top of him, Shane Douglas yells, I'm gonna kill you! Now, in what's actually a pretty cool cut, since we were talking about killing, we head to a deeper area of the backstage where Vince McMahon, God, Vince McMahon, excuse me, Vince Russo and Miss Elizabeth are with the casket that has Nosy inside, and the pallbearers are carrying the casket to uh, the staging area. We've got uh, David Flair, the perfect one, Shane Douglas, and Mike Awesome, uh, you know, flanking the casket as the... Objection! What in the flying fuck? Now, I have given these guys... A lot of leeway. I have given matches five stars that the internet would give duds because I'm amused. I, however, have no excuse for why Shane Douglas and Mike Awesome are pallbearers in this segment where Shane Douglas was literally 1.2 seconds ago on our television screen being choked to death by the wall and Mike Awesome was just removed from the premises and what he calls an ambulance fuck my life apparently though I am not the only person who's blown away by this production gaffe because Elizabeth walking down the hallway bursts into a fit of laughter and Russo tells the main event, Chuck Palumbo, to keep Liz out of his sight while laughing at the casket. Like, uh, I don't know what the deal is, but uh, final score, Elizabeth won, WCW production, zero. We come back now for the funeral of the career. Fuck. <laughs> the funeral for the career of Rick Fl- I did it! Uh, I'm leaving it all in. A funeral for Rick Flair's career. That's it. It's Russo, Jeff Jarrett, and David Flair down the aisle with the casket. But where are the rest of the jabronis who were carrying this thing? Huh? Huh? My sources need to know. Vince Russo enters the arena with the WCW World Heavyweight Championship draped over his shoulder with the funeral march playing. It's brilliant synergy that I can't even make up and really just encapsulates this entire show and company in a nutshell unfortunately when the segment reaches the point where they have to speak it's literally the same old shit Russo says that Flair had a brain aneurysm Scott Hudson lets us know that's unconfirmed Tony a massive and when I say massive I mean actually a quite loud Russo sucks chant breaks out Unfortunately, though, we all know that this will only encourage him to keep writing himself into the storylines. He indicates that Jeff Jarrett is once again the heavyweight champion of the world, and it's the third time. Good for you, Jeff. Congratulations. Oh, but he does still have Ric Flair's Rolex because he didn't put it in the casket earlier. He's going to do it now so everyone can see the, uh, the final piece added to the casket before it's placed into the ground. Vince Russo walks to the casket at ringside, opens the casket lid. 
digs around in it for a while, like somebody dropped their money clip in it or something. Or what's what is what's fucking uh, you know? It, it's is a driver or his putter, whatever Larry David drops puts in the guy's casket. Curb your enthusiasm. Oh, what a great show! Why can't this be more like Curb Your Enthusiasm? But he he digs around for a while, and oh my God, Tony, there is a sexicutioner in the casket. Kevin Nash is in the casket, and he grabs Russo by the throat. Tony Schiavone says these words, and I quote, He rose from the grave! He's the ghost of Ric Flair's career! Now, Jim Ross, legendary announcer, made me believe that he believed what was happening on the wrestling program of which he was charged with hosting. I do not believe that Tony Schiavone believes what he is witnessing. Um, Kevin Nash beats everybody down. And he steals the championship belt from Jeff Jarrett. And I think uh, Mark Madden might say, Well, does that make Kevin Nash the champion? I mean, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And this just fucking angered me to no end. I'm so sick and tired of possession is nine-tenths of the law. And I'm so tired of it, I wanted to understand it better. And uh, I bring you this piece of information that I uncovered. Possession is nine-tenths of the law is an expression meaning that ownership is easier to maintain if one has possession of something or difficult to enforce if one does not. The expression is also stated as possession is ten points of the law, which is credited as derived from the Scottish expression possession is eleven points in the law, laddie, and they say there are but twelve. It's a really shitty Scottish impression. Sorry to all the Scots folks out there. Although the principle is an oversimplification, it can be restated as, in a property dispute, whether real or personal, in the absence of clear and compelling testimony or documentation to the contrary, the person in actual custodial possession of the property is presumed to be the rightful owner. The rightful owner shall have their possession returned to them if taken or used. The shirt or blouse you are currently wearing is presumed to be yours, unless someone can prove that it is not. But luckily, we all know that we have proof that the belt does not belong to Kevin Nash. We can prove it with video recorded evidence. So this possession, nine-tenths of the law shit, is so dumb. Commercial. Uh, We come back from commercial, and a woman who's dressed like Trinity from the Matrix, but is blonde, is interviewing Russo and the boys. Vince Russo says, Who are you? Tonight, Jeff Jarrett versus Kevin Nash for the belt. No disqualification. And they storm away. I realize that this is Pamela Paulshock. The woman... Who, indeed, at the Great American Bash, will ask Diamond Dallas Page what he is going to do against Mike Awesome in an ambulance match. She's my favorite announcer now. So, we are then granted the presence of Scott Steiner, whose freaks this evening are dressed up in, uh, I'd call them off-brand University of Michigan cheerleader outfits, uh, because we're not paying for that logo. He claims that there's nothing finer than doing the 69er with Scott Steiner. Tony Giovanni brings to the table, Mark, I know you want to say something. I beg you, say nothing right now. God love you, Tony Giovanni. Uh, Steiner indicates growing up, people told him that he'd end up in jail. I've been in the cell, and I've been through hell. So from now on, where I go, the cell goes, and hell comes with me. This doesn't make any sense, but he is talking about the asylum, which is a circular cage apparatus that hangs above the ring and then encompasses combatants in an asylum match. He indicates the only way to win is to make your opponent say, 
I quit. Mark Madden adds, That thing's like 69 feet above the ring, Tony. (laughs) Out comes Rick Steiner. The bell rings with the asylum still high in the sky. How fitting. Match number five. The first ever WCW Asylum match between Scott and Rick Steiner ended in a no contest when Johnny C said, I quit. The cage does eventually surround the combatants in the ring. The Steiner brothers trade belly-to-bellies with one another. A sick overhead belly-to-belly suplex is then landed on Rick Steiner. I wonder if he's dead. Scott hits the Steiner recliner. That's Goldberg's music, Tony! Yes, the Goldberg music does indeed hit, but oh no! It's actually Tankberg with bolt cutters coming from the backstage area flanked by security. Hey, if you've ever wondered uh, who Samurai Cop is, the R&B security guard that I love, uh, he is right on the right side of Tank Abbott if you're looking at it from a television perspective. If you are Tank Abbott, he's on your left, and he has a brown mullet. I believe they're also flanked by a Slim Shady variant of above-average Mike Sanders because, you know, it's 2000 and he's got the, uh, the bleach blonde dye job. As Tank Abbott gets to the ring, he is identified by, a, an, by an official WCW Monday Nitro name graphic that does indeed say Tankberg. <laughs> and you know what, guys? It's the little shit that matters and gets you through the day, and I think that's hilarious. He tries to use the bolt cutters, but to no avail. The asylum must be made of Kryptonian steel, I hypothesize. Scott Steiner whips himself into the ropes which is actually the side of the asylum to get some momentum to kick Rick in the face. And I can't help but love the fact that Scott Steiner decided to bounce off the ropes even though he can't access the ropes, thus showing that uh, nature defeats nurture. Because those are some instincts he's got to whip off the ropes. Tank Abbott eventually beats up referee Mickey J to get the button that operates the asylum. The asylum lifts, and it's now a two-on-one beatdown. When all of a sudden, oh, here comes Kevin Nash. Now, I think a lot of us on the internet have made fun of some of Vince McMahon's ridiculous rules about professional wrestling. But here's a great example of why you don't call the championship the strap or the belt or anything like that. Because as Nash walks down the aisle with the WCW championship belt, Tony says, it's Kevin Nash. With the world belt! And that just about sums up the value of that piece of tin on his shoulder. He hits the Steiner, bro- the evil Steiner brother and Tankberg with weak-ass belt shots. The heels scatter. Kevin Nash stares into the abyss. Literally, he just looks at the bad guys in the aisle and does nothing. Madden hypothesizes that he's here to recruit Scott into the Millionaire's Club. While Scott Hudson reminds us that Vince Russo wants that belt by the top of the hour, Tony. Jeff Jarrett watches on a monitor. Vince Russo shows up and points at his t-shirt that says Yankees. There is no audio here, so I'm assuming it went something like this. Jeff, bro, we can't lose. I got my lucky Yankee shirt. It's in the bag, baby. Well, bell coming around the chosen one's waist. The bell never rings. There is no winner. I do decide, however, to award the match one pair of Kryptonian bolt cutters 
and it's literally because I chuckled when the name graphic said Tankberg. We return from a commercial, and Pamela Paulshock is looking into the camera while she waits at the backstage interview arena. She says to the camera, I'm waiting for Kevin Nash. She pauses, as if she's waiting for someone on the other side of the television to offer a response. Kevin Nash enters the frame. She says, Kevin! Uh, Nash! As if she's trying to get his attention. I would feel remiss if I didn't again reiterate that he's already there. He immediately starts checking her out. He then asks if she's single. She asks him to answer the question, Why did you help Scott Steiner? Nash Nash says, It's real simple. And then begins to challenge Jeff Jarrett to the exact same match that's already been booked. As he goes to leave, he physically spins Pamela around so her back is facing him. He pulls the old get-a-good-look Costanza and leaves. To make this worse, the Pamela character swoons as he leaves. The main event, Chuck Palumbo, is bringing Miss Elizabeth to the ring, and he's flanked by Queewee and Mike Sanders, though at this point they are unnamed R&B security guards. <laughs> you may remember Queewee from such films as TNA Never Dies, where he portrays Bruce. I know him from that Saturday Night Live sketch, where they play that song where it's like, I miss you, bum, 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 bum. Like the deserts miss the rain, and I miss bum bum bum. Hey, quick Johnny C tidbit. Did you know until like three years ago, I thought that song said, I miss you, like the dancers Mr. A, and I miss you. Yeah, I just, I just never caught the words. Here comes Diamond Dallas Page. The announcers let us know that there is a thunder taping tomorrow in Saginaw, Michigan. And it looks like this week's episode of Thunder will be less than or equal to the In Your House triple header pay-per-view, which was also held in Saginaw, Michigan, of which I would have assumed was the only televised wrestling event from Saginaw, Michigan. But hey, I've been surprised before, and I'm sure I will be surprised again. Anywho, Diamond Dallas Page also comes down to the ring, signifying that he will be uh, the event Chuck Palumbo's opponent, The bell rings, so we get match number six. The main event, Chuck Palumbo defeats Diamond Dallas Page via Racknanigans. I would just like to point out that there have been so many matches in the history of WCW Must Die that have ended via Racknanigans that my phone now recognizes Racknanigans as a legit word in the English language. Technology is amazing. Diamond Dallas Page gets an early belly-to-belly, suplex, that is, and uh, promptly stands up, and based on the success he's experienced with this maneuver, yells, Bad motherfucker! for the audience. He then hits a Dave Bomb, which is what I call the Batista Bomb. I don't know why, I just always have. You know, so if I'm watching WrestleMania 23 for the first time, and I'm like, Holy shit! Dave Bomb! instead of Batista Bomb. Mark Madden says that Diamond Alice Page is fighting a war of attrition. But of course, he pronounces it WAR of attrition. I don't know what accent that is. Miss Elizabeth eventually slaps Chuck Palumbo, and Diamond Alice Page count, or, you know, takes advantage of this with a schoolboy, but it gets only two. Out comes Kimberly, or Kimberly Page, 
and she smacks the shit out of Miss Elizabeth's back with a baseball bat. It makes a sick thud, and I don't like it. At this point, (laughs) we cut to a shot of the crowd where Mike Awesome is hilariously, and I want to emphasize hilariously, running through the crowd carrying his halo, like the the halo apparatus that he wore for his uh, entrance. Now, because the halo that he has in his hands is such a huge part of how this match ends, I figured I would toss it over to my broadcast partner, Cortana, and she could tell you how this match finishes up. Cortana, go ahead and take it away. Thanks, Master Chief. Whoops, I mean Johnny C. Laugh out loud. My name is Cortana and this is how things went down for the conclusion of this match. So, basically, Diamond Dallas Page is distracted by the presence of his ex-wife, the 40-year-old virgin's Kimberly Page. Because of this, Awesome is able to smack the shit out of Page's face with the Halo, registered trademark of Microsoft and Bungie Studios all rights reserved, void where prohibited in Utah. Even though the Halo shot is incredibly weak, the event is able to use this ruse to his advantage and racks that punk bitch DDP. Hence, Rack Nan Agins. The match was short, but also dumb. I give it one copy of Shaq Fu for the Sega Genesis, because Mark Madden said it on commentary to promote the NBA playoffs. Back to you Johnny C, and hey is it true you have an 11-inch penis? Thanks Cortana, that was great. And to address your question, no. That is a vicious rumor and I don't know how it got started. You're actually thinking of the Johnny C character that has an 11-inch penis. I'm simply Johnny C. the person, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Pivoting back to the action at hand, though, Flexi Lexi comes out to check on Miss Elizabeth, uh, but makes the decision, and it's a heartbreaking decision that he has to make, to help Diamond Dallas Page. But as he enters the ring, the main event Chuck Palumbo hits him with a Lex Flexer. Now, at its best, it's a glancing blow. But the announcers sell it as if it's death. In particular, Mark Madden, who delivers this dynamite line, It sounded like a potato chip being smashed! Which is a sound I'm sure he is very familiar with. Flexi Lexi does do a stretcher job to sell it, though, and Terry Taylor and Reed Flair are heading down to the ring as we hit commercial. We come back from commercial, and Diamond Dallas Page is desperately trying to force the innocent EMTs to get Lex into an ambulance. (laughs) And what they've done since we left for commercial is they've wrapped Lex Luger's face in gauze, like he's fucking Darkman. If you haven't seen Darkman, you should see Darkman. And they've added blood special effects by, like, staining the top of his shirt red. I mean, can you imagine convincing Lex Luger to ruin his shirt? What if that's like his favorite shirt, man? I don't know. It's just, it's it's crazy. Kimberly, the event, and Liz are watching on a little TV in the New Blood green room, and Kimberly blames Liz for everything that's happened to Lex. Liz responds by being like, well, what happened to Lex? And it's sub-reality show acting, folks. My performance as Liz may have been better than Liz's actual performance, but hey, they didn't hire her for her acting chops. They hired her, of course, to stick it to WWF way back in 1996. What do you think they hired her for? Anywho, here comes the khaki rooster and champ, Reed Flair. 
They grab microphones, and I notice that Reed Flair is rocking a gray polo shirt with a gray undershirt. And while my first thoughts were, gray on gray, why do that? My next thought was, oh man, I remember wearing undershirts under polo shirts. As a teenager, I thought it would help conceal my early year rock brecesis. I can tell you folks, all it does is enhance them. So if you're out there and you're trying to conceal your man brecesis, just wear one shirt. The undershirt's not doing you any favors. Um, But Reed says, David, will you please come out? David, will you please come out? And Terry Taylor keeps whispering in Reed Flair's ear like Slugworth style. And every time he whispers in his ear, David repeat or David, excuse me, Reed repeats, David, David, will you please come out here? David, will you please come out here? Eventually, David and Daphne do come down, and God love her, Daphne still has the Ric Flair wrestling buddy. Um, Reed asks David to come home. He's like, David, you come home. David, come home. We all need you. Ashley needs you. Mom needs you. Dad needs you. Dad's not home. Dad's not home. We need you, David. And David gets really angry, and he says, Do you know what it's like when Dad's not home? And I was like, Jesus, that's that's the that's the straw that broke the old camel's back. David got left at home one too many times and had to fend for himself. It's like, shit, when my parents left, they're like, now, Johnny C., your dad and I are going to be gone for an hour because we have X, Y, Z to do. You are going to be here by yourself. You better not fuck anything up. And then they leave and you, you know, like raid the fridge and like have a party and the next thing you know, you're in deep, deep trouble. Trouble! What are we talking about? Well, you're damned if you always deep trouble! That is a Simpsons Sing the Blues reference. And if you owned the Simpsons Sing the Blues cassette tape, you're okay with me. Anywho, Daphne hits the old Lady Liberty on the rooster, meaning she breaks a Statue of Liberty over his skull. Uh, Reed, though, seeing that violence has been initiated... Hits his older brother David with a low blow. And then shoots the legs, man. He does a double leg takedown. Good for you, Reed. He then uh, puts clinches in a side headlock on David. And I'm like, fuck, let's do this. Reed versus David, Dawn of Justice. But then an elbow to the gut kills Reed Flair. Absolutely dead. Shit. I really didn't... I just meant to imply that the Reed Flair character, like... uh goes down for the count because of the elbow, which is actually not a bad thing because the kid's not supposed to be a wrestler and he's 12, so it's believable that a gut to the elbow would knock him out Like so David could apply the figure four to him. So now that I've clarified myself, which I really didn't mean to honestly like make a gag there, and so I will kind of apologize, but, I mean, come on. So the figure four gets applied to Reed. David grabs the microphone, and as he has the figure four channels his dad and starts yelling into the microphone he's like come on champ come on champ and it's pretty fucking funny security runs in though and breaks it up and that's the end of that segment before they cut to commercial though i couldn't help but notice that there is a dude in the front row who's dressed up like a red and yellow hulk hogan but he is rocking a black vest to indicate that he's not actually dressed as hulk hogan he's dressed as hulk hogan terry bolea so I think I found the world's second largest Hulk Hogan Terry Bollea fan. So good on you. As we return from commercial, Tony Schiavone 
puts all of us at ease by letting us know that Reed is indeed okay, because he's a six-time amateur wrestling North Carolina champion, and last year he won the National AAU Championship. And growing up with a sibling who was an amateur wrestler, I know that those are pretty fucking amazing accomplishments. So I don't want to throw shade at that, although it is interesting to explain that that's what keeps him safe from the injuries and violence that David Flair enacted upon him. Now, Tony also mentions he's okay because he's competed in Japan. (laughs) I'm like, what? What? Reed Flair has competed in Japan? This is like the type of shit that announcers would say back in the day about random characters that were showing up for the first time. Like maybe if you were a surprise entrant in the Royal Rumble... Gorilla Monsoon would be like, Oh, this youngster's coming in. He's He's been wrestling overseas in Japan, making his World Wrestling Federation debut. <laughs> this youngster. I like, it's just one of those vague things that announcers would say to establish a character. Like, he's wrestled in Japan. If you have the Reed Flair New Japan Pro Wrestling fucking collection, let me know. I'd love to see it. Um, Fuck me sideways, though. Here comes Ian. And he's got a blowtorch and a gas can. And they show a clip from Thunder of Sting in the ring with the ropes on fire. And the ropes are really on fire. And if you listen to my previous episode, I spent a lot of time dissecting the poor rope-to-fire ratio that actually occurred. And I'm thinking to myself, why didn't they show this awesome shot on Thunder? Like, what a waste! It's a taped show! You clearly have the angle... But then, folks, I got my Newsmax hat on, and I did some further investigating. And I rewound this clip of the ring ropes on fire multiple times. And this clip that is aired is in super, super, duper, super slow motion, indicating that while the ring ropes may have achieved full blaze potential, it only lasted for like one second. And that's why we didn't get the shot on Thunder. So fuck you, WCW, for trying to say that you have awesome stuff happening on your shows. Because I'm here to reveal the truth. I'm going to take my Newsmax hat off now. And you can go ahead and burn that, Ian, while you're at it. Now, Tony Schiavone lets us know that at the Great American Bash, the Human Torch match is indeed on. On Thunder, they called this an Inferno match. So, they've decided to not incur the wrath of Jerry McDivitt, WWF lawyer extraordinaire. But now, they're just fucking, uh, uh, they're just a challenging marvel. I mean, have you never heard of the Human Torch, WCW in the year 2000? Stan Lee knows some guys. Well, <laughs> Ted Turner comes to me and he says, Hey, we're going to promote this Human Torch match. And I says to him, Ted. My fucking ass you are. I know some guys over in the Bronx that have got some pipes. And I'll tell you what, Ted. You try to promote this as a human torch match. I'll fucking kill you. That's Stan Lee making a guest appearance here on WCW Must Die. Stan, thanks for the kind words. Now, out next comes Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea. So I'm just fucking all over. Like, I'm, I don't know what my mind is doing, but I'm like, Wow. Ian versus Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea. Like, the two worlds of shit are converging, and I can't wait to see what they create. Um, As 
Terry Bollea is making his way to the ring, though. American Made is playing, but it's it's weird. And I notice by turning up the volume that Vampiro's music is still playing. So what we've got here is a crazy remix of the America of Vampirian made. I'm Vampiro made. Wow, wow. I'm Vampiro and Piro and Vampiro made. Wow, wow, wow. But it really does happen. And then the bell rings and Hogan's music stops playing, but Vampiro's music is still playing. I love you guys so much. If you didn't suck so much dick in the year 2000, and then I want to quote, there's nothing wrong with sucking dick. All right, But if you didn't suck so hard in the year 2000, I wouldn't have anything to do in my spare time. So God bless you, WCW. The, like I mentioned, though, the bell did ring. So match seven, Vampire Ian defeats! 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 Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea via creativity, dude. Vampiro starts the match with a, his patented Texas Tornado discus kick. And God damn it, Mark Madden keeps calling Hulk Hogan Terry Bollea, Terry Bollea. Like you're trying to get a bull to charge at you, saying, Ole! Or you're trying to get Tito Santana to come down the ring, and you say, Ole! And fuck you, Mark Madden, allegedly. Your character, that is, because I don't want to be sued. Like, his name is Bollea, not Bollea. Um, do you guys remember in March when these guys were partners? I mentioned it on our very first episode of WCW Must Die that these guys had just become a tag team alliance right before the reboot. Well, guess what? WCW doesn't remember either. So, that's a thing. They brawl on the outside. Vampiro hits Hogan with the sweet chin music. But in preparation for SummerSlam 2005, Hogan decides to no-sell it. And now he's in control with a steel chair. He also throws Vampiro over the announce table. And I'm wondering if Kevin Nash got in Terry Bollea's ear and was like, Hey, Terry, you got out there with Vampiro. Why you guys do some table stuff? I hear he's into it. Probably get an extra star from Meltzer or something. Vampiro, though, puts the kibosh on the table stuff by accidentally knocking it over with his shoulder. You can't make this shit up, guys. They go back to the ring, and Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, starts whipping Vampire Ian with his weight belt. And then he starts choking him with it. And holy fuck! First time making its appearance on WWE Must Die, straight from the wrestling war zone. Shots fired! Mark Madden says, You might see phony DQ somewhere else, or cluster finishes somewhere else, but you won't see him here! It's a fight! To the absolute finish. Somebody needs to clue in Mark Madden that the war is already over. <laughs> okay, Vince has won. He then mentions that he's orgasmic over the concept of burning flesh at the Great American Bash. And I can safely report to you folks that Mark Madden and Johnny C are turned on by very different things. And that's okay as long as it's consensual and no one is harmed. Hulk Hogan then hits the Balea bow. You know that thing where he does like multiple elbow drops and then decides, ah, fuck it. And just rakes their their face with his boot. I kind of love that. He then transitions to a dick stomp. 
Hits the big boot. Hits the big leg for the one. No! A little little remix here. He hits the big leg, but then he gets on top of Vampiro for mounted punches. Well, he should have gone for the cover because here comes Billy Kidman. Kidman grabs the blowtorch that Vampiro brought down to the ring and a gas can he also brought to the ring. I don't know if I mentioned that. I should have. Uh, Kidman smashes the blowtorch against the skull of Mr. Bolea. Hogan falls to the side of the ring on his back, his arm clearly draped under the bottom rope and hanging loose. Ian covers Hulk Hogan. One, two, three. Wow. Uh, Ian grabs the gas can. Kidman runs the fuck away. And then, it's Steve! Steve is here. He hits the Steve death drop on Vampiro. Terry Bollea and Steve hug. And Crowey looks on from Nitrovision, cheering on the Bollea-ster and the Steve-ster. In honor of the Human Torch match that's upcoming at the Great American Bash, I'm going to give this fantastic four stars. And can you imagine the meeting between Hulk Hogan and Vince Russo convincing him to lay down for Vampiro? Okay, dude. So, let me get this straight. I'm going out there against Ian tonight, dude. And you're telling me I'm laying down for the one, two, three? Hmm, strokes the Fu Manchu. Brother, I just don't know if that creative is going to work for me. Terry, we got to put over this Ian guy, man. He looks like shit. Sting beats him up every time we have a show. He's a complete loser. Terry, I'm begging you. Please lay down for the vampster. Hmm, all right, dude. Let me see here. What if we do it like this? All right, all right. I'm getting an idea. What if we have a match, okay? The bell rings, dude. And I just, like, beat the shit out of Vampiro for the whole time. I mean, really sticking it to him, dude. I mean, what if I, like, break his dick? And I no-sell his offense? And my my brother, the sexter, was telling me that we could do some table stuff, all right? So if I do all of that, and then I hit the big boot and drop the big leg, but then something's, something's up with Hulk Hogan and Terry Bollea, dude. The big leg isn't going to be enough. Now... The whole crowd knows, dude, that I've hit the boot in the leg, and I've, I've basically gotten the one, two, three. So I've pretty much won the match at this point. And then what if, what if the kidster comes in, dude, and he hits me with something really heavy, like a gun or something? Or like, what if they drop an anvil on my head, dude? Oh, Terry, I, I don't know where I'm going to get an anvil. What about like a little blowtorch? Oh, a little blowtorch, dude. All right. All right, let me, let me, let me, let me check with my contract, dude. Alright. Hmm. Alright, what if we do it this way? What if, dude, you hit me with the blowtorch, but then I lay down for the one, two, three, but my arm's clearly under the rope, dude, so Tony Khan's not going to put that in the official record books. Is that going to work for you? Terry, who the hell is Tony Khan? Tell you what, Roos, dude, you don't worry about it. Vampiro gets the one, two, three, if... My arm is under the R-O-P-E. Now, can we do business, brother? Can we talk turkey? <laughs> sure, Terry. Whatever you say. All right. Tell you what, dude. Hulk Hogan is going to lay down for the kind of one, two, three. You got it, Vince, dude. <laughs> Thank you. Terry, I'll see you later. Fuck, has anybody got an aspirin? 
That's what I would imagine that negotiation may have sounded like. All right, dude. Let's uh, let's try to get to get through this thing. I'm about to go crazy if I don't finish this episode. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man. Just as a side note, I when I when, like I love doing this show. I want to put that out there. But here's something that I've noticed. I have a lot more fun with Thunder because I feel like the absurdity of the product is more understandable on Thunder because I mean Thunder's just the worst show. But I also feel like. Thunder is where you're going to catch, like, the absolute crazy shit that you just never believe. Here, it's like you're watching a show that's trying desperately to be a competitive Monday night wrestling program in the year 2000, and it's like, it doesn't work. It's just, it's sad because I almost have to compare it to the WWF product in my head. But, uh, I don't know. That's just a little side note, I suppose. So, the filthy animals, Tony, are in the back, and they're demanding their car be returned to them by Ralphus and Norman Smiley. Uh, they notice, though, that it has been coated with the special paint-thinner soap. Uh, Conan is enraged by this and attempts to hit Ralphus. And God love him, <laughs> Ralphus does his absolute best to take the punch, <laughs> eventually just kind of falling all over himself. The Misfits in Action make the save, and uh, kind of a brawl rubs, and everybody has a dance partner, and they all kind of fight all over the parking lot. I notice in the back that the Juice is putting on a clinic. He is literally teaching Shawn Michaels a thing or two when it comes to selling uh, the punches of Corporal Cajun, because he's just flailing all over the place. He must be hitting him with the force of a thousand suns or something. Ralphus lays on the ground like a slug. It's truly his only defense. Bill DeMott arrives and demands that Major 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 Hey Major Guns Hey Major anyway Lord I'm leaving it in. He demands that Major Guns attempts to wake up the fallen Ralphus, who apparently is one of their comrades. Now I would like to know for all you betting fans out there, what's the over under on this being the first time that uh, Bill DeMott has ordered a woman to kiss another man in front of him? Allegedly. So um, Scott, Major Guns is like, do I have to? Because she kind of has an accent, that's why I did that. Uh, she bends over to uh, start giving Ralphus mouth-to-mouth. Scott Hudson says, I was like, see this? <laughs> I, can't, I can't even, I try to do the Hudson voice and started laughing. As I see this, I'm reminded, it's my first anniversary. Which is sad in so many ways. The first anniversary, he's calling this professional wrestling extravaganza in Grand Rapids, which I'm sure is not the hottest city in the world, Michigan. Ralphus, in anticipation of this event, licks his lips, thus giving up his cunning ruse, and he gets a a slap from Major Guns. We cut to commercial, we come back from commercial. Uh, Tony Schiavone lets us know that the Lakers are playing the Trailblazers in 10 minutes, so thank God this shit is almost over. Here comes Jeff Jarrett. Here comes Kevin Nash. And Jesus Christ, Kevin Nash's WCW authorized name graphic says WCW belt holder, Kevin Nash. Okay, it doesn't actually say that, but I'm wondering how many people out there in listener land actually thought, my God, they have just really given up, haven't they? Well, it would have said that. But it didn't. But we believed it, and that's how far they've really fallen. The bell 
is about to ring because both of these combatants are in the ring and Mickey J has his finger pointing to the sky. And as soon as that finger points down, that bell is going to ring. When all of a sudden, hey, vengeance! It's the Batman with Russo and Bischoff security and his lucky New York Yankees t-shirt. Now, we get a rare double header here from Scott Hudson, uh, because Vince Russo enters the ring, and this is what Scott Hudson says about Vince Russo. (laughs) For Pete's sake, he's in the ring, and good night! He just punched Billy Silverman! (laughs) So he was able to use his two catchphrases for one point. I don't know. I I think he should get some sort of award for that. But Russo calls for the bell. Match eight for Ric Flair's question mark. Vacant WCW World Heavyweight Championship. The alleged real world's champion, the chosen one, Jeff Jarrett, defeats the self-proclaimed executioner and the reigning, defending, nine-tenths of the law, WCW belt holder! Via Vince Russo's bloody show. Apparently, this matches Falls Count anywhere. Nash hits a sidewalk slam. Goes for the cover. One! Uh, But Jeff Jarrett kicks out at little crotch chops. (laughs) Meaning that Vince Russo decides after one, he stands up and he does really fast, really tiny crotch chops. And he goes, yeah, right here. I swear to God, I can't make this up. I'm not that funny. I'm not funny enough to make that up. Oh, uh... Uh, the dick distraction, though, allows Jared to hit Nash with a chair. I uh, notice that front row Hulk Hogan Terry Bollea looks either unamused or gratefully regrets his ticket purchase. I can't really tell because he has hot sunglasses. Nash no-sells the chair and hits a clothesline on Jared. Jared flies over the top. We go outside for some brawling. Kevin Nash hits a ring apron-assisted snake eyes. One. Oh, but Jared once again... Kicks out at little crotch chops. Nash stalks Vince Russo inside the ring. Oh, now watch. This executioner stalks his prey. The tiny New Yorker, unaware of his surroundings, falls into the sex trap of the executioner. Um, there's a... My note says belt shot. But honestly, I don't know who gets hit with the belt. One, two, kick out. I'm assuming that Jared got hit with the belt. I don't know. Nash gets control. And... Nash now has the chosen one in a jackknife position. But Russo pulls the old mace. Same old pimp. You know, ain't nothing changed but his limp. Can't stop now till his name's on a blimp. He guarantees a million sales by pulling all the love. Meaning he maces Kevin Nash in the face with mace. And that rhymed. And I'm excited because of that. We hear some sirens. The sirens stop. Jeff Jarrett hits the stroke on Kevin Nash. Luckily, Kevin Nash lands on his knees. But for some reason, his face hurts after the maneuver. The sirens strike again. And here comes Big Papa Penis. And wouldn't you know it... I was going to sing more, but fuck. They spray mace in fucking Scott Steiner's face. They handcuff him to the ropes. Samurai Cop is here for the assistance, so that at least makes me happy. Uh, the end of, in the ring, though, for somehow, uh, some way, Kevin Nash is on top of Jeff Jarrett, and Russo goes down for the count but refuses to count. Nash, in a bold move, chokes 
the Batman, and Russo decides to do a legitimate count. Thank God the Chosen One kicks out at two. My notes actually say one, two, logic out, I swear to God, uh, meaning I probably mistyped kick and my phone thought I meant logic, but honestly, I think either one applies. The machine is indeed mightier than the pen. Um, they, they fight to the outside. Nash takes down Russo and Bischoff's security. They fight. Uh, Nash is in the aisle with Russo chasing him. He finally catches hold of Russo, and they're on the, the ramp, and he puts... New er, puts Nuso, I almost said, puts Russo in the jackknife position. And honestly, it's kind of cool. Like, the fans are going crazy at this moment. But holy shit! The arena starts to bleed. Nash accidentally moves the jackknife position over to the side and gets hit by this blood. He's got to be doing this on purpose, right? I mean, Nash, this is the second time he's conveniently missed the initial blood splatter. Now, I bet that it fucking hurts if you take the initial splat, but it just looks really bad. And hey, if you remember those really excited fans that were happy to see some action right there in the aisle by the pizza, the pizza, by the seats that they paid for, they're totally pissed now because they're covered in Vince Russo's discharge. Acoustic equalizer. Jarrett puts a foot onto Nash. One, two, three. Um, I guess Jarrett's the officially recognized heavyweight belt holder of the planet. Fuck this company. I'm done with this episode at this point. Bischoff comes out, uh, hands Russo a mic, and Russo says, Bite us, baby! And then Jarrett says two things. I'll give you one guess what they are, but you don't need any. We hit the copyright, and we are done. I I can't even rank this match. I can't even. It was awful. It's terrible. Even for my standards, it was just a clusterfuck of nonsense. Like, I kind of like those more low-key bad stuff. Bad. I like more low-key bad shit. This was just on-the-surface bad shit. I award it no points, and may God have mercy on its soul. And I'll tell you what, folks. I need a little mercy after this episode. This Nitro started hard. I was really digging the Booker T cat stuff, and I was having fun with some of the shenanigans that the crew was getting up to, like the funeral and what have you. But they just took it too far. Meaning that the logic of the multiple title vacancy ownership switches, like, I can't justify it. I can't explain it. You know, a lot of times things... In old it, with the, bad professional wrestling things or mistakes become legendary. Okay, it's the old Mandela effect or what have you. It's kind of like we all remember that there was that time where the WCW title changed that changed hands like two or three times, like with nothing actually happening. And I don't know that they're officially recognized. They probably are, if you trust Wikipedia or whatever. But they don't even like find a logical way to describe it within the show itself it's just kind of hearsay and announcers saying things like are they the champ is he the champ possibly the champ could be the champ it's just really really bad and that just kind of goes to show that regardless of how much fun it is to laugh at these people it's kind of sad and now 
It feels like that. It sounds like in my neck of the woods, the heavens have opened up. Someone's yelled Shazam, or I'm about to get struck by lightning for podcasting about this episode of WCW Monday Nitro. If it was thunder, I'd keep going. But that's going to do it for me here on WCW Must Die at the North South Connection Podcast Network. Give us a follow, write a review, shout us out on social media, tell us how bad this episode of WCW Monday Nitro was, and check out everything that's available on the feed. If nothing else, the Cronoso Daily Pod Blast will give you a shot in the arm to help you wake up, because Lord knows that is getting difficult and difficult as each day passes. And uh, find a show on the network that covers the professional wrestling era or pop culture thing that you love, because I can almost guarantee there's something out there to whet your appetite. Stay tuned with us next time when the name of the game is WCW Thunder. Until then, Shazam! See? And now there's Thunder because I said Shazam. Alright, I'm really leaving now. Bye-bye. Freaks. No. Freaks. 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 Frea